Father, as we enter into John's great discourse on love here in, in the next few chapters in the book of 1 John, I just ask that you uh, just show us how central love is to, to all we do as born-again believers. In fact, it's more, more than that, Lord. It's central to who we are. As we're going to see today, it's the litmus test of whether or not we're truly born again. Lord, uh, if, if, we, if we don't love one another, then there's something deep-rooted wrong in our faith. And so, Lord, show us this, as we begin this study, Lord, on love, just show us how important it is, first of all, to, to measure whether or not we truly are loving people. Lord, because you are love, and, and if you're in us, then, then we are love too. And so, so Lord, we want to be more loving people, and we ask for that power. Lord, we can only be... Uh, have that agape love, Lord, when, when you uh, uh, give us your Holy Spirit in a powerful way. And, Lord, we want to be loving people. We live in a dark world, and, and, Lord, it's easy to hate right now. And I just ask that, Lord, that you do just make us the kind of loving people you want us to be. Lord, show us these truths, and, again, we can only learn these by the power of your Holy Spirit. So ask that you be our teacher today uh, as we come to... This text, I ask it in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 John, and we will be in chapter number 2 of 1 John. And today we're going to be looking at what I will call the litmus test for salvation. This is it. You want one test where you can determine whether or not you're truly born again, we're going to give you that test today. What's a litmus test before we get started? Well, uh, in our culture, it's an idiom that's used to uh, determine whether or not a product or a person is meeting a certain standard. Uh, in just a few weeks, we're going to be voting in a general election. And I don't know about you, but I have certain litmus tests for the people that I vote for. One of those things is, do they believe in the uh, or do they support the Second Amendment? Uh, are they physical conservatives? Are they capitalists? Yeah, I'm a capitalist. Uh, do they believe in a strong military? I believe in a strong military. But let me tell you what, my most important litmus test, or the litmus test for me when I vote for somebody, is are they people of moral character? Now you see why I'm having such a trouble trouble finding somebody to vote for because my litmus test kind of throws out just about everybody there are a few running for certain offices uh, as far as the presidency goes I'm not going to be political today so we're going to go on from there but back to the subject at hand what's the litmus test of salvation what's the litmus test of salvation well some religions would say that the litmus test is whether or not you drink or whether or not you uh, go to movies, or whether or not you uh, or what, wear makeup. I mean, there's all sorts of religious litmus tests. Uh, some people in the church would say that the litmus test for whether or not you're saved is how often you read your Bible, or how often you pray, or how often you go to church. Some of you would fail that last litmus test. Uh, I'm joking. But None of these things are the litmus. Those are good things, don't get me wrong. But they're not the litmus test for salvation. So what is 
the litmus test. Well, the Bible gives us several litmus tests. And John gives us a lot of litmus tests here, right here in 1 John. Uh, he, he, remember, he gave us one in chapter number one. He says, one litmus test of whether or not you're saved is do you walk in the light? Do you walk in the light as he is in the light? Because if you don't walk in the light and you're walking in darkness, then you're not saved. Uh, another litmus test that John will give us in chapter number four is, do we confess Jesus as Lord? Do you confess Jesus as God Almighty? Do you recognize him as Jehovah God? That's a litmus test. And another litmus test, and this, I really don't like this litmus test, but he gives it to us anyway in chapter number four. He'll ask us, do we love the world or the things of the world? You know what he'll say after that? If you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. So those are all litmus tests. But they are the litmus test. The litmus test of whether or not you're saved, he's going to introduce in our text today, the litmus test is whether or not we love one another. That's the litmus test. That's the, the, the greatest litmus test of all. And the reason it is the litmus test is because the, the results of that test, when you take that test, are overtly clear to everyone. They're overtly clear to God. They're overtly clear to uh, everybody around you. And they're overtly clear to you. Look, you know whether or not you love others. You know whether or not you hate others. Look, you could fool yourselves and you could say, man, I, I really believe that Jesus is God and really you don't really make him Lord and you really don't believe that he's God. You could fool yourself on that litmus test. You could fool yourself and say you're walking in light when you're really walking in darkness. You could fool yourself and say, well, I really don't love the world when you're a real big lover of the world. But on this litmus test, you can't fool anybody. Either you have the supernatural agape love of God or you don't, and you know it. Because you know whether or not you truly love others with a supernatural love. You know how you know that? When you love people you don't like. When you show love to people you don't like. Now, it's easy to show love to my sweet wife, my wonderful wife. I always get these points in. But, but I mean, there are some people, not in this room, but there's some people it's really hard for me to show love to. And when I show love to those people, it's not me showing love to them. It's the supernatural love of God in me that's showing uh, love to them. And that's why it's the test of whether or not you're saved. You know, I know people who, who think that they are Christians, that they believe in the Lord. They think that they're pretty good people. They think that they're walking in the light. Uh, they think that they're not that worldly, but they're racist. You know, you can't be a racist and be saved. Now, let me say this. All of us have a flesh and all of us have racist tendencies. You have to fight off those racist tendencies. But I'm going to tell you right here now, right here and now, if you're in this room and you hate people because of their color, you are not saved. I don't care if you're a black person who hates white people or a white person who hates black people. If you're a racist, you cannot be saved. There's no way you can be saved. If you hate your spouse and you're just living with her in hate, you can't be saved. If you hate your neighbors, you can't be saved. The love of God is not in you. 
I mean, if you have no people that you just absolutely, they harmed you in such a way, you've made a decision, you're not going to forgive them. Let me tell you what, I don't believe the love of God is in you. Unforgiveness, is, is God forgiving? I mean, all of us are sitting here because of the forgiveness of God, because of the mercy of God. We all should have been struck dead and out of here a long time ago. He forgives us, and so we need to forgive others. And if God is in us, we will forgive others. And so I want to take a closer look at this litmus test in, in the book of 1 John, and I want to explore this a little bit because really it's a matter of eternal death or eternal life, whether or not you pass this test. If you don't pass this test, you're, at some point you're going to be heading uh, for a very dark place. So let's look at this and, and uh, apply it to our own personal lives. Listen to what he, how he begins this. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, so that you'll quit sinning. You know, I've written this book to you, John says, so you'll stop sinning. And one of the sins is to hate others. And so he says, I, I write this to you so that you'll stop sinning. And if anyone sins, hey, I would say, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate, an attorney. You, you realize you've got your own attorney up in heaven? Who's your attorney? Jesus Christ, he's your attorney. You better be glad he's up there advocating for you. You'd be in deep trouble if he wasn't. If you were standing on your own against the Father, you would be in deep trouble. But you have an advocate. You have an attorney in heaven. And his name, he's an advocate with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, if you remember in the introduction to, to 1 John, John gave us three purposes for writing this book. The first purpose was that our joy might be full. And then when we get to chapter 5, he's going to tell us that he write, wrote, writes these things so that we will know that we have eternal life. So one purpose is that our joy may be full. Another purpose is so that we will know that we know that we know that we have eternal life. And then he tells us in verse number 1 of chapter 2, I write these things to you that you will quit sinning, that you may not sin. Now, why does he want us to quit sinning? Because all of these things are interrelated. Let me tell you what. If you're living in sin and you're a born-again believer, you're not going to live there long if you're a born-again believer. God's going to get you out of that. But are you going to have any joy when you're living in sin if you're a born-again believer? No. And, and if you're sinning, you know what's going to happen when you fall into sin if you're a born-again believer? You're going to doubt whether or not you're truly born again. And if you doubt whether or not you're truly born again, you're not going to have any joy. So you see how these things are all interrelated? And so he gives us three, these three purposes. And here it's like he says, hey, I want you to have joy. But you're not going to have joy if you keep on sinning. And, but as, but as a, even as a born-again believer... John's saying there are going to be times when you do sin. And I don't want you to lose your joy when you sin, when you fall into sin. I want you to quit sinning. But I don't want you to lose your joy because you have an advocate. It's not all over when you sin, even if you commit this great sin. It's not all over because you have an advocate with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And notice how he addresses us in this verse. He says, my little children. One expositor translates that, that little phrase, my little children, as my, my born ones. And that's literally what it means. The Greek word means the born ones. What does he mean by born ones? Those who are born again. So who's he address, addressing here? He's addressing born again 
believers. And he tells us, hey, quit sinning. I write these things to you, you little born-again believers, so that you will quit sinning. And, it, and, and uh, really, as a born-again believer, we should never sin. You know what John's going to say to us in chapter number 3, verse number 9? You don't have to turn there, but he's going to say, whoever has been born of God does not sin. If you've been born of God, you do not sin. Now, that sounds pretty strict there. That would kind of, might empty the room here saying things like that. Man, I don't belong in here because I certainly sin. And that's not, what John's not saying that you never sin. What he's saying is you don't live in sin. You're a born-again believer. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been given the perfect spirit of God, and that new spirit does not sin. The perfect spirit of God that God gives you when you're born again does not sin. That part of you does not sin. Our problem is we still have a flesh. We still have a flesh, and, and at times that flesh is going to lead us, our bodies, into sin. We're going to give into the flesh and not put to death the deeds of the flesh, and we're going to sin because the flesh is always warned against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But you know that if you're a born-again believer. You know that there's a part of you that's perfect. That, that new nature that God has given you, it is absolutely perfect. But your flesh is not. Your flesh will not be redeemed in this life. Your flesh won't be redeemed until you get a new body. And so at times you are going to sin. But guess what? When you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ is your attorney in the courtroom of God. You want to know how many cases he's lost? Zero. He's never lost a case. You know why? Because he's the judge's son. Pretty good deal, isn't it? Hey, that, not only that, i got to tell you something else. When he goes into the courtroom, guess who wears the judge's robe? The father takes it off and gives it to the son. I'm in John chapter 5, verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son. So the son who is my attorney is also my judge. Now, you talk about a court fixed in my favor. I'm in good shape. I mean, just imagine. Now, this is going to be hard to imagine, knowing me. But imagine I'm going down the highway 25 miles per hour over the speed limit, and I get a reckless driving ticket. Now, I know that's hard to imagine, me speeding. But I get this ticket, and I walk into the courtroom, and it's a big ticket, and they're about to put me in jail, and I walk into the courtroom, and I got a big old smile on my face. And the prosecuting attorney says, man, what are you looking for, so smug for? I'm about to put you away. I'm about to throw the book at you. And I said, well, let me tell you what. I said, guess what? My attorney is the judge's son. <laughs> And he says, and he says, wow, that's not too good. But he says, I'm going to still throw the book at you. And then he's sitting there and he's talking to the judge. And all of a sudden the judge takes off his robes and hands it to the son. And then he understands why I'm looking so smug. Because I'm, there's no way I'm not going to win that case. Jesus Christ is your attorney and he's your judge. And he's already paid your fines. We're going to see that here in just a minute. What a great deal. Now. Does that, just, does that mean I just sin because, hey, I can get away with it? 
Theoretically, theoretically, you can. Theoretically, you can sin all you want. I wouldn't advise that because the judge is also carries a paddle and he will spank you if you do. Now, he really doesn't have to do that, does he? Because if, if, the, if you know the judge, then the judge's son, you don't want to sin. You hate sin because you've been changed. You have a new nature, and your new nature hates the darkness. Your new nature loves the light. Remember what we talked about last week? When your new nature sins, you feel like a rat. You feel like a roach. You feel terrible. And if you don't feel terrible when you sin, you don't know the Lord. But if you know the Lord, you're not going to want to sin. But now sometimes your flesh is going to drag you into it. And when your flesh drags you into it, then you have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ. And he's got plenty of grace to cover all your sin. Because look at verse number 2. And he, Jesus Christ himself, is the propitiation for our sins. Now I hear evangelists from time to time, some of these evangelists say, Hey, you don't need to know words like sanctification, propitiation. They almost talk about these words as if they're nasty words. And they say all you need to present when when you're speaking to people is a simple gospel. Well, let me explain something to you. If you don't understand what propitiation is, you cannot get saved. You have to know what propitiation is. You might not know that word. But you better know the meaning of that word and you better be able to apply that meaning of the word to your life or you cannot be saved. It's essential to your salvation. And Jesus is the propitiation for our sin and not for ours only, but for the, also for the whole world. You know, I don't know what Calvin was reading when he came up with this doctrine of limited atonement, that God somehow died just for the elect. No, he died for who? Who did Jesus Christ die for? The sins of the whole world. How much, does, how much of the sin of the world does his blood cover? All of it. Every single bit of it. And so there's no such thing as limited atonement. Now, the application of that atonement comes when you appropriate the propitiation. If you don't appropriate the propitiation that Christ has made, then you can't be saved. So not everybody doesn't get saved, and that's not what John is saying here, but there's plenty of blood. It didn't take but one drop of God's blood, that infinite power in that blood to save every single soul who's ever lived and who will ever live. That's how powerful his propitiation is. I'm saying propitiation, propitiation, and somebody's saying, what in the world is propitiation? Well, it's, it's a long word with a very simple meaning. All it means is the price paid. The price paid to redeem a slave. You know, you and I were slaves to sin and to the devil. And the propitiation is the price that Christ paid to redeem us. That's all it is. And there's propitiation enough to go around for the whole world. Now that's some pretty great news. But that news is only good if you know Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're not covered by that propitiation. That propitiation is not paid for your sins. You will pay for your sins forever in hell. So you need the propitiation. You need the payment to set you free, to redeem you from your slavery to the devil and to to sin. 
but it's been paid if you know him. Now, we want to make sure what? That we know him. How do we know that we know him? Because we don't drink? Because we pray a lot? Because we go to church a lot? No. Listen to what he says in verse number three. He says, now by this we know that we know him. And we have the propitiation if we keep his commandments. Man, just reading that on the surface, y'all might ought to get somebody else up here to finish this sermon because I don't qualify. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He is not saved. Now, some people will take this verse. And I can name some names. I'm not going to name names. Some very popular preachers in the United States. And they will tell you that it, you get saved by the blood, but you keep your salvation by keeping the Ten Commandments. In other words, if you don't keep the Ten Commandments, you don't know the Lord as if they do. Look, if that's the case, then I don't know the Lord. And I'm going to tell you what, if that's the case, you don't know the Lord because nobody keeps all the Ten Commandments all the time. You know what the first two commandments are? You're to love the, the first one is, you want to sum it up, you're to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And anybody that says they do that is full of mush. They're lying. You can, that's another, mush is another word, word for lying. When you get mushy, you know you're lying usually. <laughs> when you say, oh, Lord, I love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, the Lord just goes, come on, dude. You're not going to watch the saints lose this afternoon? I mean, come on. I mean, you love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? No, you, nobody loves the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and nobody loves their neighbor as much as they love themselves. And that's the rest of the Ten Commandments. Nobody. You, you, you just check it out sometimes how much you love yourself. Even when you help others, it's because you love yourself a lot of times. You want credit. You want glory. I'm, you know, I'm loving others. We are so naturally wicked and full of pride. It is impossible for us to keep the Ten Commandments. So what is John saying here? Well, we've got to put it in context with the rest of the Bible. Because remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 10. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Now, John and Paul were on the same page. They wouldn't contradict one another. And Paul says, hey, Christ is the end of the law. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that all things are lawful. You know why all things are lawful? Because you're not under the law. And he can't be any clearer than he is in Romans chapter 6 verse 14 when he says that we are not under law, but under what? Grace. We are not under law, we are under grace. So John's not saying that if you've got to keep the Ten Commandments in order to get saved or in order to keep your salvation or none of us would do that. He's not saying that at all. But, but what he is saying is 
that whether or not we are practicing those commandments is a sign of whether or not we're saved. And it really is. It really is a sign because here's why it's a sign. Let me show you. You don't get saved by keeping the commandments. You don't keep saved by keeping the commandments. But what did Paul tell us about the mystery of the gospel over in Colossians chapter 2? Remember what he said? The mystery is this. Christ in you, your hope of glory. If you are born again, if you're one of the born ones, you're one of the little children, Christ lives in you. That's your hope of glory. If Christ is not in you, you have no hope of glory. Christ, and listen to me very carefully, Christ is the embodiment of the spirit of the law. It was Christ who gave Moses the law. That's his law. He gave him that law. And, and, and that's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the law now is not written on tablets of stone but on our hearts. Because we have Christ in our hearts, the law is part of who we are. It doesn't save us, it doesn't keep us saved, but it, it's part of our natural nature. And so we don't keep the letter of the law, we keep the spirit of the law. And what's the spirit of the law? One word, what is it? Love. That's the spirit of the law. It is love. That we love the Lord, those are the first part of the commandments, and that we love one another. And if Jesus is in us and Jesus is love, then we will be keeping the commandments of love. And really Jesus summed up the commandments in one commandment. Go with me for a minute over to John chapter 13. Back up to John, the Gospel of John. And listen to what he says here. Go to, I've got to tell you what chapter, right? Verse chapter 13. And look down at verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give you. Now John's going to say, I, you, you have an old commandment that's now a new commandment. It's really not anything new. But it's new in the sense that it becomes part of who you are. It's part of your new nature. Listen to what he says. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He repeats that. By this all will know that you know me, that you are my disciples. You, you want to know if you know the Lord, then you love one another. If you have love for one another. If you don't have love for one another, then you don't know the Lord. That's the litmus test. The litmus test is love. Christ is love. Christ is in you. And so if you have love for one another, then you're not going to lie to one another. You're not going to steal from one another. Let's go through the commandments. You're not going to commit murder against somebody if you love them. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to steal your friend's wife or, you, or whatever. You're not going to do that. But here's the problem with the law of love. It goes even further. The law of love says that you do unto others. It's active. You would do unto others as you would have them to do un unto you. If you see your brother or sister in need, then James says, hey, you know, you're not really saved if you just say, brother, I'm going to pray for you. No, you help that brother and sister. That's how you measure your love. Look at verse number five. Go back to 1 John, chapter number two and verse number five. He says, but whosoever keeps his word 
his word, the word really it's the word we just spoke, that this is the new commandment, that you love one another. You could say the commandments, but they're summed up in this love. Whoever keeps his word truly, look, it's not the law is perfected in them, is it? Love, the love of God is perfected in them. Not by keeping the law, but by doing what's natural. And, and by loving others. By this we know that we are in him and he is in us. If you're in Christ, you will love one another. The love of God is perfected in you. Now, let's talk about this love for a minute. He's not talking about mushy love. Like, man, I love that vanilla milkshake at McDonald's for a dollar right now. And I love that thing. That's not the kind of love he's talking about. I love my wife. I, and maybe there's some agape love there. But he's talking about agape love, which is supernatural love. It's love in action. It's love that reaches out to people and does good to people. And not only does good to people and, the, and right to people, it helps others. That's, that's agape love. And it's not philanthropic, philanthropic love. I know I mispronounced that, but live with it anyway. I, it's, it's, it's not charitable love. It's love that's part of who you are. It's supernatural. You don't do it to earn brownie points. You do it because it's who you are in Jesus Christ. It's the supernatural love of God in you. And the only way that you know that you know Christ is if you have that love. If Christ lives in you, you will have that love. And if we have agape love, that, that supernatural love of God, then we can be sure that we're in him and he is in us. Look at verse number six. He, he who says he abides in him ought to himself also. Now, boy, John, you, you, you're really knocking us down here. Look at the standard he sets. He who says he abides in Jesus Christ ought to himself also walk just as he walked. Goodness gracious. I don't see many Jesuses in here. I don't see one up in the pulpit. I don't walk everywhere he walked. The good news is he's not talking about where to walk where he walked. We're to walk as he walked. He walked in the light. None of, none of you are going to walk on water today. I don't think so. If you do, call me. I want to see it. I want to see you drown. No, I'm teasing. That's not love. We don't, we don't walk where he walked. None of us are going to bear a cross and walk down the Via Della Rosa or up the Via Della Rosa and, and be hung on a tree. None of us are going to. That's not going to happen to any of us. But with that said, if, if he is in us and we are in him, we're going to be walking as he walked. And as I mentioned just, just then a while ago, first of all, that means we're going to be walking in the light and not in darkness. We're going to be walking in righteousness and not in sin. If we're walking in sin, if we're living in sin and we're comfortable living in sin, then we don't know the Lord. We're going to walk as he walks. And secondly, it means that we're going to walk in love for one another. Man, 
Jesus said some hard things, really good things, but they were hard. Some things our flesh doesn't like to hear. But you remember over in Matthew chapter 20, he said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. Uh, uh, that's, that means that we're to love one another. We're to serve one another. Now here's where some people go wrong. Does that mean that we're to, you've got to go out to a leopard colony and minister to lepers in order to show your love? Does that mean that you've got to, to go to Africa and become a missionary, that you've got to, you've got to make an effort and, and, and see, find you an opportunity to, to love people all over the world where there's a disaster, you've got to fix everybody's problem? Uh, does, does that mean that? No, Jesus didn't do that. You know, you think about it, Jesus only ministered to a few thousand people on a little sliver of land in Palestine. Now, he's been ministering ever since, and some of the things you do will minister to people way beyond anything you can imagine. But he only ministered to a few thousand people on a little sliver of land, and, and, and uh, that's all he did. I mean, and, and you think about it, how long was his ministry? It was only for three years. And so, you know, I mean, it was a great ministry, obviously. It saved us all, and what he did on the cross is, is, is our salvation. But he's not asking us to save the world. He's not asking us to go everywhere in the world. Not every one of us. I'm, certainly the, the Great Commission the, uh, mandates that some of us are going to all the world. But really that, that text says, as you go, as you walk through life, you're to show love. Listen to what Paul says. I think Paul nails it on the head in Galatians chapter 6. He says, as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those of the house of, household of faith. That's exactly what Jesus did. As the Father gave him opportunities, he seized upon every opportunity that the Father gave him to show love. And that's what he wants us to do. Let me tell you what, you don't have to hunt down opportunities to love people. They're everywhere. God will give you the opportunities to show agape love. Now here's our problem. We have a flesh and we're stingy and we're nasty. And we, our flesh doesn't want to help anybody but ourselves. And so we've got to submit our flesh to our spirit and seize the opportunities that God gives us to help others regardless of their race, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their gender, regardless of their political party, regardless of their religion. We're to help others when those opportunities come. And then he says in verse number seven, he says, brethren, brethren and sister, I write to you no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. None of this is new. The fact that we're to love one another is not new. It was in the Old Testament. It was in the law. It was an old commandment. It's not new to you to love one another. You've had it from the beginning. The Jews have had it from the beginning. The church has had it from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. But then John messes, messes around with us. He says in verse number eight, he says, again, a new commandment I write to you. It's not any different. 
It's new because Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. It's a new commandment that I write to you, which thing is true, which, which thing is true in him and in you because of the darkness. Now, here's why it's new. Here's why it's new. Here's, here's why it's new from the old. This, was, this is what distinguishes it from the old commandments, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. Because the darkness is passing away. You catch that? The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining in you. That's why it's different from the old commandment. It's, it's the same as the old commandment. The Ten Commandments are still there. They're still good. Actually, they're still a tutor to lead people to Christ. But they're also in us because they're part of us. But they're different because the darkness is passing away and the light is dawning in our souls. You remember when God gave the Ten Commandments. I've been reading through Exodus here recently and, and over and over and over again, every time Moses told the people about the law, do you know what they said? All you have said we will do. And they were still 100% in their flesh with no spirit to help them along. But they didn't need the spirit. All we had, you, all you've given us, we will do. Now when God gave them the law, he gave, where did he give them the law? In what kind of setting did he give them the, them the law? In darkness. In absolute darkness and gloom and terror. Now, why did God choose that setting? That wasn't an accident. Why did he choose that setting? He chose that setting because even though they said, all you have said we will do, he knew they couldn't do any of it. They would break the law before the day was out, every single one of them, even Moses. And so the law was a thing of terror because it brought death because the wages of breaking the law is death. It's death. And so... He says, you know, the darkness is fading away because you've received a new commandment. The light is dawning in your soul. And no longer, I don't ever say all you say, Lord, I can do. I say, Lord, help me do all you say. And by your power, all you say I can do. Because there's a new light. There's a new New commandment, but the new commandment encompasses the old commandments. I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't cheat. I don't, most of the time, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm kind to others most of the time, or some of the time, <laughs> a little bit of the time. <laughs> but the only reason I'm kind a little bit of the time is that I have Jesus Christ in me and the light is dawned in my soul. You see the difference? And then we wrap it up here in, in verse number 9. He who says he's in the light and doesn't love. What's the opposite of love? Hate. He hates his brother. I don't care for any reason because of their race, because of their political party, because of their religion. You hate your brother. I think primarily he's speaking of brothers and sisters in Christ, but he's also speaking about our human brothers and sisters. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. They fail the litmus test. 
They fail the litmus test. You might call yourself religious, but you're still under the law. You're in darkness and gloom and terror. In darkness. But he who loves his brother, he who loves his fellow man, he abides in the light and there is no cause for him for stumbling in him. What's the light? The light is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is love. And, and because God is love, we live as people who love. And that, and, and that doesn't mean that at times we aren't going to stumble because we are going to stumble at times, but we have an advocate. We have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse number 10, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. That's a terrible, terrible place to be. That's a person who is totally deceived himself. I don't care how religious you are, how often you go to church, how often you read your Bible. You can read your Bible and pray to your blue in your face. But if you hate someone, if you're unforgiving to someone, because of their race, because of their class, because of their political party, then you fail the litmus test. You fail the litmus test. And you're not saved. And you think you're religious, but you're in darkness. And the darkness has blinded your eyes. See, that would be worse than going down the interstate full speed without your lights on and not re realizing that your lights aren't on, sooner or later, you're going to crash. And if you think you're living in the light when you're living in darkness, and the litmus test is this, whether or not you love your brother, if you think you're living in the light and you don't love your brother, you're walking in darkness and you're going to crash. But we don't live with our lights off, do we? We live with our lights on. And we don't hate our brother because the love of the Lord is in us. And sometimes when we aren't so loving and we fail and we sin against one another, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ. Back in October of 2006, actually 10 years ago, you might remember the terrible story or the news story where Charles Roberts went into a little Amish schoolhouse loaded to the hilt. He shot 10 little Amish girls in the head. Five of them died. A few of them were crippled. I mean, Terrible, terrible, horrific act of violence. And it shocked the world. It absolutely shocked the world. But you know what even shocked them more? A few days 
after that horrific act, at Charles Roberts' funeral, a band of Amish people, including the relatives of those children who had been killed, showed up to give their condolences to his family and assure them that they were forgiven by them. Now, I don't know if their motives were sincere or not. I got to believe they were. But I got to tell you something. That would take a lot of agape love to get me to do that. That's supernatural love. I've experienced that before. When I, I've experienced it at times when I thought I absolutely hated somebody and then God, when I could, was in front of those people, I felt the supernatural of love of God for those people. It's the only way you're going to love people the way you're supposed to love them if you know Christ. And if you know Christ, you pass the litmus test because he is love. And his love, his supernatural love, lives in you and I. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the great love we have in Jesus Christ. But Lord, we, as believers, having his spirit, are to walk just as he walked. Not in hate, not in cynicism, not in bitterness but in love, a love for everyone, Lord, even our enemies. Lord, help us. We, we can't do that in the flesh. Help us to be the kind of loving people you would have us to be because, Lord, that's the only way we can spread your light. The light of Jesus Christ we, and his love. We just thank you for that light and we thank you for his love. We thank you in his precious name. Amen.